This morning we began our journey in the book of James, and uh, I was thinking as I started uh, the study this week that this is quite a study to, to wow seekers as they come to the church and influence those outside of the church to come in because uh, the book of James, as I said last week, is pretty raw and in many ways. It, 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 it affects us deeply. It's, it's real. And, and I love how the Bible speaks to us right where we are. No one is perfect here. Not a one. And uh, in our non-perfect life, things don't go the way that we think they should go. We are broken people who have been made whole in Jesus Christ, and yet we still live every single day in a broken world, right? Our world is broken. Can we agree on that? And, and when we get to the book of James... And he begins by saying to us in, in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various, when you meet trials of various kinds, we, we know he's talking about us. He's talking to us. And he's not just singling out one trouble. He could have, he could have uh, said one specific thing, no. And so you might be sitting there, Pastor Jeff, do you mean uh, my broken marriage? That's a trial, and yes, that fits into various kinds. Or your neighborhood is in shambles, fighting, bickering, anger, hostility. Is that a trial? Yes, that fits into various kinds, along with parents and, and grandparents worried about their wayward kids and grandkids. And there's a, the broadness to the term trials here. And so I believe when we come away with some application for what God's word has for us today. And, and we know if you've lived long enough on earth that these trials are not just one and done. They're just one day and then they're gone. We want to think of it that way, but it isn't true. You know, a high school senior lives in this tension. They know that it's their last year and they're soon to have freedom. And classes are boring, chores are and work are mundane. They have curfews and questions from parents. And they know, they think this trial is soon to be done. The year will finish and the trials will be all over. Hallelujah. And they go to college, and, and, and it's going to be fun and easy. But then in college, they find the chemistry exam too hard, and it causes them not to sleep at all the night before. And activities, along with a part-time job, and, and they want to have money, so they, they work and study, and then they meet that special someone. In the midst of trials of college, they know it's coming to an end, and they can see on the horizon this new job and, and freedom from this pain and from all these trials they're, they're facing. And soon they will marry the love of their life, and all of their troubles will melt away. They graduate thinking that the things will get easier, but to live in a world as a dating couple is expensive, and they juggle work and, and rent on their own, and they work harder, harder than they could imagine in, in their new professions, and they're tired. They think this, this trial will end soon. Soon they will marry the one that they love, and all their troubles will fade away. The honeymoon comes and goes, and their perfect spouse snores at night or leaves the bathroom disgusting. You never can imagine that you could love someone so much and yet not see eye to eye in every single thing. Disagreements, fights even emerge. But this trial will soon be over because the wife is pregnant. They look forward to this new life to come. But in this life, they lose one. They lose the child before it's born. And grief overwhelms them. And they, 
And they know that this trial will, will come to a close because they're, they're pregnant again. And, and then nausea and, and mood swings. And you fast forward eight months to the joy of a newborn in their hands. And, and the trials are over, they think. The waiting is done and all is going to be well. Their marriage is intact. The baby is here. Their jobs are still providing. The trials are over as they fall asleep. They, they're going to rest, but not for long. Baby wakes up four or five times at night. In an instant, they're awake, tired, grumpy, change diapers, wash clothes, feed baby, then repeat. And God brings number two and number three, number four, number five into their life. And they think this trial will be over soon. And in just a, a, a few short years, they will leave the house. These kids will be gone, and then we'll have peace. In every stage of parenthood, we, we, tell, our say, we tell ourselves that the, the next phase will be easier. This trial we're going through is going to be easier the next one. When the baby can sleep through the night, things will get easier. When the baby is potty trained, things will get easier. When the child will obey when asked, things will get easier. When they go to school, they'll be more independent. Things will get easier. In each stage of life, the trials they think will end and more come. Then their child begins to drive. And look at the opposite sex in a different way. And talk about dating and then college and then a job in another state or another country. And then they marry. And you think, now I can relax. Now, now the trials are over. But retirement isn't what you thought it would be. You miss the daily work. You, you miss the respect you, you got from the job. And, and your body is not like it once was. Health issues now come. And then you begin to wonder, did I... Did I save enough for the next 20 years? And we keep living as if trials are just one and done, but life says differently. Friends, trials are not just one and done. From infant to retirement, trials are consistent. It's not if you meet trials of various kinds, it's when. In the days and weeks and months, not just moments. This is what I love about the Bible. I mean, the Bible meets us in our world, the one we're living in right now, not just a fantasy world. There is no best life now, a utopia of all our dreams coming true. It's a lie. But there is a best life coming. It's after this life finishes. But right now, we're in the space in between the, the already and not yet. Christ is coming back for his bride, amen, for the church. Until that day comes, we will have trials. And when you read the Bible, you see that this world is, is not clean and perfect. No, it's, it's dirty. People get sick. People die. People are betrayed and ignored and lied about. People grow weary. But by God's grace... Story after story, they, and they endure and push on, not because of sheer willpower, but because of the power of God. They can press on because they have a joy as believers that cannot be taken from them by the trials of this life, a joy that transcends the horror and some really bad circumstances in their life. And, and the more years I live in this earth, the more I understand that God is working right now in the midst of trials and trouble to strengthen us yet for future trials. But when you're young, you're naive. Still think I have some of that in me, probably. You, you think, you, you want to believe that there will be a better way, an easier way. 
I remember when I preached through David and Goliath a number of months ago, I had, I had a young man come up to me and said they love that story. They love the, 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 the ending when, when David slays this giant and goes and cuts off the head. And when you're young, you love that stuff. You know, you, you think that's it. That's the pinnacle. They haven't suffered very much in life. They haven't bled. You haven't spent enough time around others that suffer. Because they don't remember, that, that boy doesn't remember all the years following that one event in 1 Samuel 17, that David suffered. But now, for me, at the age of 41, I pay attention more to the suffering of others, to, to trials in my own life, because I know that they're at my doorstep and that they're allowed and sent there by God. And so as we begin the book of James, I, I stand before you not as an expert. I, too, want to know how to endure trials for the glory of God. I don't know what God has in store for the life of this church. It could be a new level of trials that we've never experienced before. And so with that in mind, we begin the book of James. We've said it before, maybe we should really do it, but we should just put on our sign, come suffer with us as an outreach to this world because as believers, we can expect trials and trouble. And this morning, we're going to look at just the first four verses of James chapter 1 and and I want you to see the benefits of facing trouble. The benefits of facing trouble. And I have three areas I want to look at. First, trouble allows us to adopt a new attitude. Uh, trouble allows us to adopt a new attitude. Second, trouble allows us to understand life better. Uh, trouble allows us to understand life better. And third, trouble allows us to submit our lives over. So I'm going to read the text here, these few verses, and then I'll pray and begin. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together as the body of Christ here and, and worship you. And now as uh, your word is preached, God, we ask that you would help us, that you would teach your people, that we would come away changed and convicted and, and different than when we came in, and may it be for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. James begins here with an introduction of, of who's writing this letter. Who is this? Well, there's a number of people in the Bible named James. There was James, the brother of John, and James, the son of Alphaeus, but there was one man who came to be one of the, the four main pillars of the early church. And in the very first generation of Christians, Peter, Paul, John, and James became the four acknowledged leaders of the early church. They were the pillars. But this James, who was the great leader of the church in Jerusalem, was James, the brother of Jesus himself. He was the son of Joseph and Mary. He was the younger brother, of course, because Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph before they were married. He was one of Jesus' younger brothers. He was raised with Jesus. And we know from history, there's really not any doubt about this, he was really the leader of the Jerusalem church. And tradition and history tell us he's the writer of this epistle, this letter. He almost has to be because this James, the James who was the brother of Jesus, was far and away the most prominent and famous James in the early church. Any other James would have to distinguish himself in some way, as he wrote, any other James would have to be called James the this or James the that. Anybody would, wouldn't just write the letter James, it would be him. It would be the brother of Jesus. 
And you know, ever so often there's a story that comes out about some celebrity, and it's, a, it's an expose to, to uncover, to show you the flaws of this person you all look up to. And this person that they, they may say is, wasn't as great as everyone thinks they were. And, and usually, who's the person that writes these stories? It's, it's usually a family member, someone who lived with them, someone that could see their sin right up close, possibly a little brother. You treat your little brother as dirt. You know, I was a little brother. I know about this. Your, your little brother sees all your indifference. Your little brother sees all your heartlessness. Your little brother sees all your ego and pride, all of your, your shortcomings. And this is James. He is a Jew, but not just any Jew, a Jew who was willing to say, I have seen this man up close, and he is the Lord. All that tells us is that there's a, a moral grand, grandeur, that the quality of life, the words and deeds and wisdom and the consistency and the character of Jesus Christ must be unparalleled for somebody to live with him from the time that he was little and to say, this is the Lord. Another part of this great story behind this little verse and, and who James is, is, is the fact that we know from the Bible that James did not always say this. Do you remember back in, in, in the Gospel of John? In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They made fun of him, actually. They, they scorned him, and that's not hard to believe, Right? We have a lot of trouble sometimes treating people inside our family with the honor with which people outside treat them. Isn't that right? Well, why? It's, it's our pride. We say, what makes him so special? What, what makes her so special? I, I wiped their nose. I changed their diapers. What makes that person so special? And it's, it's hard to see a claim to someone on the inside. And when you say, hey, I'm cut from the same cloth, it's It's pride. And his brothers, we read in John chapter 7, rejected him. They, they didn't believe in him. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he appeared to a number of people. And from what we can tell, he almost appeared to, to, to large groups, even though he appeared to Mary in, in singular form. But, but the woman, and, and he appeared to Peter and James and John. But there's only one person from what we can tell that he had a, a very special appearance for. And 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us he appeared all by himself to his brother. James. And how amazing that would have been for James. He was different. He was his Messiah. And this would have changed James mightily. Eventually, the enemies of the gospel took James in, in AD 62 to the pinnacle of the temple and said, there are too many people becoming Christians. This is what the historians tell us. Too many people becoming Christians, so I want you to say to them, to don't, don't turn to Christ. And I don't know what in the world they thought he was going to do. You know, telling him, to tell, tell people to turn away from Jesus. And we're told James looked out and called down and said, why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He dwells in heaven at the right hand of the mighty power. He will come in clouds of heaven. And in anger, they threw him off. He fell to the ground, but he wasn't dead. Beaten and broken and Twisted to his knees, he began to pray for the forgiveness of those that just threw him off. And at that point, they come down and they stone him and they beat him over the head with a fuller's bat until he was dead. This is James. This is the one who says to us in verse 2 Consider it joy. He was ready. James was the right one to write this for us. 
He knew that suffering was coming and he was prepared to suffer for the one that had saved him. So that leads us all into to the study here in verse two. So look, let's look at the benefits of trouble. First, trouble allows us to adapt a new attitude. James begins the benefits of having trials in our lives with the need for adopting a new attitude. In verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And here, this is a command. It's, it's called an imperative in Greek. Be prepared. There, there are lots of imperatives that James has in this book, almost 50 in this short book. And James is, he's a thoughtful and caring pastor, but he's also very direct. He doesn't mince any words. And he says, count it all joy. Count or consider, your version might say. Esteem it. He isn't encouraging to have this, this visceral reaction only, but to think about this. To consider it, to weigh it, to take a perspective on the trials that you're experiencing. We have to stop and think about it because having joy in the midst of trouble is not a natural human reaction. And joy, we have to think of joy. When is that? Joy is a, a state of being rather than an emotion. Here's a definition. Joy is settled contentment in every situation. Settled contentment in every situation. This is an unnatural reaction of deep and steady and unadulterated thankful trust in our God. We have to choose joy. It doesn't come naturally when trials come. And so we have to adopt a new attitude. And we have to prepare ourselves. He's telling them, think about this before it comes. Now let me illustrate this for you. Huh? How many of you have ever been in a fist fight before? Raise your hand. No church discipline's going to happen, okay? Be honest. Raise your hand. Okay, I'm really disturbed by that, actually. We're going to talk about the small elders, okay? Fight club at Edgewood. <clears throat> Have you ever been in a fight for And I'm not talking in your imagination, but actually drop the gloves, fight. And by the way, kids, I'm not condoning this, so don't go home and slug your brother and sister in the head, all right? I don't want to get any of those phone calls from mom and dad. Don't do that. What I'm suggesting is that before a fight, before even it happens, you prepare yourself in some way. If you know that you're, the only way to win that fight is to throw punches, then, then you know it'll help you and you prepare yourself. You'll, you'll posture yourself differently and prepare your mind for action. And then the whole situation will go better once you adapt the attitude that's what you need to do in that situation. So James says here, count it all joy. He's saying, prepare yourself. Adopt the attitude that this is happening and you're going to meet trials of various kinds. And they will meet you where you're at. You don't have to go looking for them. In fact, he's, he's saying, don't do that. They will come. Just like when you're hiking and an animal happens to come onto the trail. You didn't ask for that. It just came. These are trials in the same way that come into our lives. And, and just to make sure you catch this, he, he's writing to believers here. He says, my brothers or, or brethren, this is the church, the churches that are dispersed. 14 times he uses this phrase in, in the book, my brothers. And it's interesting. James, a, a stalwart of the Jerusalem church, could call them his children. He, he could call them his sons and daughters, but he doesn't. He says, brothers, which I mean, and I take as equal footing. Brothers, we're in this together. They were brothers and sisters, and James is writing with gusto and yet gentle, imploring his brothers and sisters in the faith to not waste the trials that come into their lives. 
So how do we do this? How, how do we count it joy? Martin Luther thought that before you get the joy and love that help us face these sufferings and troubles, we must allow this trouble to empty us of our pride and then lead us to find our hope only in Christ. Our, our, our true joy can only be found in Jesus. And Luther gave his life to teach and preach that there is nothing more important than for a person to see that he, he or she could contribute absolutely nothing whatsoever to their own salvation. So how could this be any different? Can we move through troubles in our life by just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps? Or do we rely on the one who, who saved us? And, and for those of you friends that are here this morning and you're not in Christ, your troubles will continue. But unfortunately, you don't have the option to find joy in the midst of those troubles. There's no joy. You're, you're still opposed to God. But perhaps, friend, if you're experiencing trouble right now, it possibly could be God who's drawing you into himself. Perhaps like Saul on the road to Damascus, God is bringing trouble into your path so that you can experience salvation once and for all. Friend, don't discount the work of God in your life and his drawing you to himself. Place your faith in him today, turning from your sin and turning to Christ. And when you're in him, you'll be able to counter all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And as believers, we, we need to look to prepare ourselves. No matter how holy you think you are, you need to get up early and spend time in prayer with God or whenever that is during the day. You need to, to look to memorize scripture. Just as if you're preparing yourself for battle, you prepare yourself for this battle by spending time with God. You prepare yourself for, for trials by spending time with other Christians. You, you get involved at church. You, you attend more than just once a month. You know, I read a disturbing article not long ago of that large percentage of American Christians only attend church two times a month. And, and that's astounding. It, it bothered me. You're literally hindering your ability to, to, to fight in the midst of these trials and to find joy because you've separated yourself from other people. You've pulled yourself out from other believers who are walking the same path as you. And you may have Christian friends in your neighborhood or in your workplace, but the, the theme in the New Testament is the church, the local church. So when you skip church, you're setting yourself up for more difficulty because you're choosing to walk alone. So we need to, we need to change our attitude and realize that tri trials are, are coming and we need to adopt a new mindset. And, and why should you do that? Well, it moves into the second point. Trouble allows us to understand life better. Jesus or James says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trouble is coming. Perhaps it's already here. Why is it here? What, what purpose is it? Testing is an important step in the process of identifying its genuineness. And Proverbs 27, 21 talks about testing. It says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And a man is tested by his praise. The way that objects are proven to be gold or silver is to be removed of their dross. I don't think we use that word enough, dross. Dross means something is regarded as worthless. You know, in the English, in England, have the word rubbish. They have that word. I think we should adopt the word dross and use that more often. Use it in a sentence. Like, the Seahawks is completely, their team is dross. Sorry, I'm just preparing you for trials, okay? It works. Or the lions, I guess, are dross. 
But there's a furnace. Back to, back to the point of the text here. Silver and gold are identified by having its dross burned off. And the proof of the gold is in the heating. The, the proof of your faith is in the testing. Real Christians will be tested. They'll be tried and they will come out shiny and beautiful because all the dross will be burned off. God is bringing trials into your life to burn away all the false faith that you have in yourself or in others. To purify your faith in God alone. One commentator wrote, the difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith heating it in the crucible of suffering so that the impurities might be refined away and so that it might be, become pure and valuable before the Lord. The, the testing of faith here then is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not. It is intended to purify faith that already exists. And what does the testing produce, James says? Steadfastness. It could also be translated perseverance or endurance and fortitude. And it has an idea of carrying a heavy load for a long time, like a muscle that becomes stronger when it faces resistance from a weight. Trials turn Christians into weightlifters, turns Christians into marathon runners. These, these verses is James preparing believers to endure through this life because those trials will come, and when they do, they will do their job to build into our lives endurance, perseverance. They come to, to stretch our faith in God. You know, just this last week for an application, I, I sat down at, at, at a birthday celebration and, and a conversation between Mike Ferguson and Carson Williams. And Carson was sitting there grilling Mike about what it will look like when he enters the Marines. You guys know that Carson's going to the Marines? You should pray for him in a month, a little over a month. So I sat there, never entered the military myself, and I heard the, the earthly equivalent of what James is saying here. He will enter the crucible in October. And the goal is to burn away all those things that could hinder him as a soldier. And what I appreciate about Carson is that he's, he's taken it all in. I can't say for certain that there isn't a twinge of nervousness or fear, but he's absorbing it so he can prepare himself. And this is what James is telling us this morning. You, you, you won't know everything as you enter a trial, but you need to prepare yourself. What's our goal when we enter trials? Two possible ones I thought of. First, our goal in the midst of trials might be to fix it. If our goal is just to fix your circumstances and you're setting yourself up for a constant frustration because often the circumstances won't get fixed like the way you want it to. And sometimes it won't get fixed at all. And even when it gets fixed like the way you want it to, something else may come and mess it up. And so you live in constant anxiety. But if your goal is to not just fix your circumstances, but to know God and to grow in him, then you can rejoice no matter the circumstances, and your faith will grow, and you'll be stronger in your trust in God. See, God has designed trials for your growth and godliness. But perhaps your goal may be when you face a trial is to just go backwards. We, we, we want to forget the trial we're in, and we want to go back. We want to go back to the good old days. We, we think back, it was, it was better before. Can you think of any illustrations in Scripture? One I thought of was the book of Numbers. People left Egypt, right? 
and they're in the wilderness and they're not happy. And they begin to complain. God deals with the complainers. And then later in Numbers 11, the, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt and that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. You guys are hungry now, aren't you? And he says, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Manna that fell from the sky, mind you. And they, they're saying, life is so much better in Egypt. Now we're in this trial. We had it all. We had fish that cost nothing. And cucumbers and melons. And it may seem like they're complaining about the food, but underneath they're, they're complaining about the plan of God. And they're painting pictures of Egypt that aren't accurate. They leave out in those pictures what was wrong to them. And the future for them seems so difficult. And all they want to do is just go back. Go back to the place that was right. At least it was right in their mind, in their memories. And the past seems so tangible. Know it by heart. But their heart is deceiving them. And God in that time was stretching their faith to trust in him, trust in his plan. And we have the same tendency in our lives. We can all begin to paint pictures of Egypt. And we leave out things that we never really liked. And it's just a beautiful picture of what the good old days were. And we just want to go back. But we know, not by sheer knowledge, but through life experiences, that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So James doesn't point them back, he points them forward. That God is producing in us a heroic endurance. And trouble allows us to understand life better. Trouble allows us to understand God better. Allows us to understand his faithfulness. You see, if you quit, if you walk away, you won't see the full effect that God is doing in your life. And I know too many people who walk away. When the trials and the troubles come, they're not able to submit their lives over. And they walk away and they don't see the completion of what God is going to do. And that leads to the third point. Trouble allows us to submit our lives over. Last year, James writes verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When trouble comes into our lives, and it, and it will come, we embrace the testing to grow in our endurance and faith. And when this endurance has its full effect, we will be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. These verses remind us of others in the New Testament and encourage us. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces 
endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see a theme here in the New Testament? We should expect trials, and we should rejoice in the midst of them. Paul writes the same things. We rejoice, as Peter says, because our trials are just for a little while. I think as Christians, I think we're the only ones in this world that can they can suffer and still rejoice at the same time because we have hope that transcends the situation. And, and he says here in, in 1 Peter, I love that. And friends, like the, the vapor that comes out of our mouth on a cold day, our trials come and go in comparison to eternity. Though for a little while, he says. And so James isn't, isn't wandering out all alone on this subject. He's got friends with him saying the same things. We should expect trials. And when they come, we embrace them with joy. We rejoice, not because they're fun, but because God is working in and through us. We rejoice like a woman who rejoices when they carry a child. A woman knows they face nausea and they know a painful childbirth is coming, but they rejoice because they look past the trial and they see the end, the birth of their child. And these trials are there to help us. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Being perfect and complete, lacking nothing means that it's a, a rounding out. As more and more parts of righteous character is added to us, we're, we're more rounded out as, as Christians. And the theme throughout the Bible is you won't get there unless you go through trials. Let's take the conversation out of the spiritual world and into the life experience. Have, have you matured in your life? Have, have you grown? Have you grown because everything worked out well for you and perfectly? Life is so smooth and so you've matured? That's not at all. That's not at all. You, you, you've matured because you've struggled. You've, you've, you've failed. You learn by, by scraping your knees and bruising. You learn by, by thinking you're right and then being taught that you were actually wrong. That's how you grow up. That's how you mature. So do you really think that the, the way we mature spiritually is just any different? Does God just sprinkle some fairy dust on our head and we just mature? No cares, no concerns, all is well? No. But we, we want that. We don't want to mature slowly and through trials. We want to skip all of that. Maybe that's you this morning. And maybe you just want to get out of here. Get out of this place. You, you want ease. You, you just want to go home and watch football and, and scoot into work tomorrow with no troubles. That's not how life works for us. We, we need troubles. Let me end with this. I came across a great quote by A.W. Tozer this week. Let me read it for you. 
The fallow or unplanted field is smug, contended, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow or being broken up. And such a field as it lies year after year becomes familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily into sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. And maybe you're like, yeah, that sounds right. I, I can do that. Appreciate that, Jeff. Well, wait, what's he getting at here? He says, but, it, but it's paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and of the harrow. In direct opposite of this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protected fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken, but its rewards have come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up in the daylight. It's a miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy late in the seed when it enters the ground. And get this, the last sentence, it just wows me. Nature's wonders follow the plow. Nature's wonders follow the plow. And if you've lived any amount of time on this earth, as a believer, you know this is true. And maybe you're right smack in the middle of it right now. Or maybe you've had a peaceful road for a while. Or maybe there are some of you who have yet to experience the darkness that comes out of trials. And we walk through this difficult trial and come out on the other side. We can look back at how it affected us, how it shaped us, how it grew us. Affected not only us, but those closest to us and how they walked with us. And it's only because that trial has been given its full course and brought endurance. And endurance brought completeness in our lives. A well-roundedness. And friends, it's the plow that shows you that. It's not a magical dusting from God. It's the hard and difficult plow. Charles Spurgeon is quoted saying, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. Hmm. And for us as Christians, that means we don't run from troubles that God allows in our lives. Spurgeon paints the picture for us. We embrace it. We know. Because that trial, the trouble, pushes us into the rock of ages, our sovereign Lord. And so friends, brothers and sisters, hear me. Countered old joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, steadfastness, fastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that teaches us and guides us and leads us and how your word opens us up. And it's hard, it's difficult sometimes. But it's careful and, and loving. And, and even though we might feel raw in some ways, God, you're, you love us so much and you're, you're careful with us. And we thank you that your word can apply to our lives in the midst of troubles and trials. We love you that you've saved us. We can never uh, get, get past the fact that you've redeemed us. Help us now, God, as we continue in this journey, in this road of life, that we would continue to be faithful to you, that we would seek to prepare ourselves to have joy in the midst of trials and troubles, that we would honor and glorify you in this way. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.